have sometimes described how when I first started teaching the Dharma full-time 25 years ago, more than 25 years ago now, uh, initially I was uh, you know, really making an effort to do what I could do to uh, to offer the teachings in as many places as I possibly could, and of course, uh, I was motivated by a need to be able to uh, support myself as a teacher, which I, very gratefully I've been able to do for 25 years without really doing anything else. Uh, at some point. Uh, I uh, kind of realized that uh, you know people were you know and at some point I started to uh, get a little bit of notoriety you know uh, you know and and, and uh, you know I did a lot so that I was able to let people know that I was teaching uh, and at some point I realized uh, you know I was overbooked I mean I was you know, teaching way too much, and I was kind of getting a little burned out, uh, but that I was continuing to say yes. Uh, I was always saying yes, and I was, you know, no was not in my vocabulary. Somebody would ask me to teach, and I would always say yes. Uh, and, uh, you know, I realized I was saying yes, but I was overbooked. I really didn't have uh, the time or the energy to be taking on all the teaching jobs that uh, I was being asked to take on. Uh, and I, you know, some of them I didn't want to take on, to be honest with you. I mean, there were certain things that uh, it, they didn't really speak to me in terms of what I was, people were asking me to do. They weren't things that really resonated for me or spoke to my, my heart. But still, I was saying yes. And that went on for quite a while. Uh, at some point, uh, I realized, as and you know, and this really coincided with my own skill as a Dharma practitioner. Uh, uh, I realized in in uh, in being heedful of uh, the intention behind my saying yes that I was saying yes. Uh, my saying yes was driven by unskillful intention. It was driven by by fear. Uh, in many cases. Uh, and, uh, you know, I was saying yes out of fear sometimes of, you know, there were different, you know, reasons. Uh, and really, the only thing that really matters is that saying yes was coming out of fear. Uh, it was unskillful. You know, there was fear of financial insecurity. There was fear of people not liking me, people being displeased if I said no, people being mad at me. One of my greatest fears is people being mad and angry at me. It goes really deep, but you know the issue, of course, is just that the intention was was uh, imbued with fear. Uh, and uh, as I began to see that in many of these cases or certain cases, uh, saying yes was motivated by unskillful intention. In many cases, fear. I also began to see that saying no was uh, something that, uh, an action uh, that was motivated by compassion for myself, 
by love for myself. Uh, that uh, saying no was skillful insofar as it was uh, uh, an action that was driven by the heart, uh, compassion, love for myself. So, uh, The key, of course, for me, as I've already elucidated, uh, was I, you know, I learned at a certain, at a certain point uh, to practice heedfulness, you know? and it was it wasn't a skill that I ever had in my life, and I took actions without really understanding why I was taking them or really having any insight into what was motivating my actions, uh, uh, and you know. When we do that, we basically take actions out of past karma. You know, and past karma is largely unskillful. Uh, certainly, the karma of taking actions based on fear, you know, fear of people being displeased or not liking me was highly karmic uh, for me. Uh, but I didn't, couldn't see those patterns or I didn't understand those patterns until I learned to practice heedfulness and I learned to pay attention. Very simple practice of being heedful. Uh, of looking at our actions and, uh, you know, so simple that the Buddha taught it to his son Rahula when Rahula was seven years old. I wish I had learned some of these skills when I was much younger. Uh, so uh, it's very simple uh, practice of looking at our actions and seeing if our actions are skillful or unskillful, seeing if our actions are unskillful, if they're motivated by unskillful intention. In this case, I started to be heedful the first time in my life, I said, well, what's driving this action? Oh my God, it's fear. It was a revelation. You know, it was a revelation. I didn't understand, you know, what was driving. Now, of course, that's not, it wasn't an analytical process that I went through in discerning that my actions were driven by fear. I was like, what's driving this action? You know, and I looked at the body and there was fear there. And that was fear that was driving the action. So it's not analytical. It's not psychological. We're looking at what the quality of mind is that's imbuing the action and forming the action. And the way that we're looking at what the quality of mind is, is by, in generally speaking, looking at the body and seeing what the mental state is that's informing the action. So this is a, that's an important point to make, right? Because before that, it's, it's theoretical, it's analytical, it's not based. A lot of times we look and we say, oh my God, because I didn't, you know, it's like, I, I could have, I would have probably analyzed you know, A, I might have analyzed incorrectly what was motivating those actions. B, even if I analyzed it correctly, change doesn't really happen until you understand it by seeing it in real time for what it is. So our ability to be able to change the intention and understand the unskillful nature of an unskillful intention like fear is really dependent on our ability to actually know that quality in real time, as the Buddha says, according to reality, as it manifests as form in the body. So, uh, so I learned to be heedful. I learned to see, oh my God, you know, this is what's driving these actions. It's fear, and then it was like a quality of disenchantment, you know, which is similar to disgust. You know, disenchantment's a nicer word, but there was almost a sense of disgust. It's like oh, I don't want to act based on fear, you know, uh, and I can really see that this is fear. And I could also see, again, at the same time, that saying no would be motivated by love, by compassion for myself. So, uh, so you know, we learn as Dhamma students to 
look closely at our actions, look closely at the decisions we're making. Decisions. You know, a lot of the actions that we take are, are uh, you know, come under the category of decisions that we're making. Should I teach this class or not? You know, should I do this or not? Should I hang out with that person or not? Should I take this job or not? Uh, so, you know, in looking at our actions, uh, we, uh, in looking at the decisions that we're making, uh, the skill that we use to discern what's in our best interests uh, is the skill of heedfulness and seeing what the intention is that's driving the action. It's really important in looking at our actions and in looking at decisions that we make from day to day, big decisions, but also the subtle, more subtle decisions. Some of these decisions, you know, I was making were, were more subtle. Uh, you know, it's like, can you teach this one class? It wasn't like, can you change your career? You know, it's like, can you teach this one class or can you, you know, meet with this person or whatever? Uh, so, uh, uh, so it's very important for us, you know, in looking at these actions and decisions we're making to see what's motivating them to be heedful uh, and specifically to notice, you know, is this action motivated by fear or is it motivated by love? So that's a very important dichotomy. Uh, you know, and they're really, you know, fear, you know, love is the, is, the, is, is, is the antithesis of fear. So a lot of times we take actions, we make decisions based on fear. As Dharma students, we're asked to see that, to develop that insight, you know. And again, it's, the insight is, is dependent on you seeing in real time that that's what's driving the action by being aware of the mental quality as it manifests in the body just saying to you, you're making that action out of fear isn't going to enable you to change. You have to actually see that that's what you're doing by being aware of that mental state uh, in real time. Uh, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and then being aware in real time of the heart and the heart's intent, uh, you know, in terms of love and compassion. So uh, it's really important, you know, as we're making decisions to, to be aware of this dichotomy. You know, and it's not every decision or every action, but a lot of the actions that we take uh, and decisions that we make, you know, really come down to deciding between fear and love. So, uh, so this is, uh, in terms of being heedful, uh, something to really pay close attention to. One of the stories uh, from the canon that uh, we talk about a lot is a very simple story of the acrobats, the two acrobats. Uh, and uh, it was a father and a daughter. And uh, the father uh, would balance a pole on the top of his head, and the daughter would sit on top of the pole. Uh, you know, and it was like a you know, carnival act. And, uh, the father would say to the daughter, you know, you watch out for me and I'll watch out for you and we'll be okay. And the daughter said, no, you watch out for yourself and I'll watch out for myself and we'll be okay. Uh, so they went to the Buddha for consultation and the Buddha said, well, she's really right, you know. In order to be able to take care of others, you have to take care of yourself. In order to be able to look out for others, you need to look out for yourself. If you can look out for yourself, then you can look out for others.
So, uh, you know, this is a very important uh, central premise in the Buddhist teaching uh, that in order to be able to uh, take care of others or be there for others, we have to take care of ourselves. Uh, uh, you know, if we can take care of ourselves, we can take care of others. When we're in a place of strength, the strength that we develop by taking good care of ourselves, by loving ourselves, we can be there for others. When we feel good about ourselves, when we have love for ourselves, then we're able to love others. If we don't feel good about ourselves, if we don't feel some degree or connected to some degree with love for ourselves, it's really hard you know, to want to love others. Uh, if we're at ease and peace, we're able to help others. If we're in a state of, of agitation and disease, it's really hard for us to help others. If we practice the Dhamma uh, and we develop the kind of easeful qualities that we're developing in meditation today, then we're in a good position to help others. Just think if you develop that beautiful quality of ease and jhana in the meditation, you know, and somebody asks you to do something, you know, when the meditation is over, it's like, oh, I feel good, yeah, I can do that. If you're tight and you're tense and you're agitated, it's like you're not in a position where you can help others, and really, others don't really want our help when we're in that kind of uh, that kind of place. You know, if we're able to abandon our dukkha, our clinging, our suffering, uh, we're in a much better position to be able to handle to help others. If we take good care of ourselves, if we take good care of the heart, if we develop the heart, if we practice and develop the heart, if we develop compassion, then we're in position for, to develop others. If we're still imbued with aversion and desire, and we haven't made the effort to help, to take care of good care of ourselves, we're not in good position uh, to help others. And, you know, truthfully, others really, you know, don't really want our help. You know, who wants the help of somebody who's, who's aversive and uh, fearful? So if we take action out of self-love in terms of taking good care of ourselves, then we're in a good position to help others. You know, this is, this is such an important truth, but it's so difficult for us. It's so difficult for us. You know, we may have some sense of this, we may have some experience of this, we may have heard this, we may understand on some level that this is an important spiritual truth, uh, it's very difficult. It's very difficult, you know. Uh, you know, and it's one of the reasons why I'm talking about this, because I can see in myself, you know, how this is so, so hard for us to put ourselves first and to take good care of ourselves and to stick up for ourselves uh, and, 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 and to love ourselves. Uh, uh, and, and how, you know, we're stricken by so much fear of wanting other people to like us and being afraid that people won't like us if we if we put ourselves first, uh, and I see this in myself, and I see it in you know the people that I talk to. You know, and I talk to a lot of people during the course of the week. You know, and talk about their practice and their lives, and and this is one of the things that I see uh, right there. At, you know, at the top of the list, this difficulty that we have in taking good care of ourselves, in putting ourselves first. In understanding in the in the heart this truth that uh, in order to take care of others we have to take care of ourselves. So, you know, uh, what we may see, you know, so so this is you know this is all you know food for thought. Dhamma talk is food for thought. You know, 
we, you know, we need to look at our actions and, and, and to be able to discern what, what it is that we're doing and reflect. You know, this is known as appropriate attention, wise reflection, wise reflection. Uh, you know, we look at our actions and we reflect on our actions. And as we begin to reflect on our actions, uh, we may see, you know, that we put others first and don't act out of our own best interests. And we may see that we do that because we're afraid. Uh, because we're afraid of other people not liking us, afraid of what other people might think, afraid that other people might not like it if we put ourselves first. We may see that you know we please others, we make an effort to please others because we think that we have to do that so other people will like us and that it's the only way that others are going to like us is if we help them. That they couldn't possibly like us or care for us unless we did something for them. Yeah. So, so this kind of reflection uh, into our clinging largely comes under uh, seeing how we cling to uh, to self perception, uh, the view that we have of ourselves. Uh, uh, and wanting others to have a certain view of us. Uh, oftentimes what we see is what's driving you know, this inclination, wanting other people to have a certain view of us. Uh, uh, you know, and and you know, that being informed by a view that we have of ourselves, uh, we see that what's driving this. So, you know, so we see this, you know, we see, wow, you know, I really want these people to like me. I really want others to like me. I want others to think this way about myself, uh, or I need to do this in order to validate myself, or, uh, you know, whatever it is in terms of what we're doing in order to develop this very precarious construct known as a self-image. You know, we see that you know, act, all these actions that we're taking that are informed by an effort to hold on to some kind of self-image. So you know, that's sort of the general reflection. And then we say, well, what's driving that? You know, what's driving this effort to make this construction? And what we might see in many cases is that it's fear, is that it's fear. It usually comes down to fear and rage, you know, is basically what's driving our, uh, our clinging to uh, self-identity view and, and, and the ways that we're trying to construct uh, self-image. So our practice is seeing how we sort of cling to self-image, wanting to have a certain self-image, wanting to create a certain self-image and then seeing what's driving that effort. You know, that's the deconstruction, the taking apart the Four Noble Truths and what's driving it is often fear. And then, you know, we begin to start in taking it apart to begin to ask what would it be like to give up the need to hold on to uh, certain forms of self-image? Uh, what would it be like to be free of those ways of clinging? What would it be like to be free of 
uh, needing other people to like me or always having to please other people or having other people think I'm the greatest thing on earth. Uh, what would it be like to, to be free of that? What would it be like to be free of that? The short form of that question, that reflection is, what would it like to be free? Be free. What would it like to be free? What would it be like to be free of the fear uh, that other people will uh, dislike me if I don't do what they want me to do? Food for thought. Food for thought. Another, perhaps somewhat less well-known story uh, in, from the canon, which I'll try to paraphrase it, paraphrase uh, is the story of somebody who came to see the Buddha and, uh, you know, he, and, he, and he said to the Buddha, he said, you know, I, some of the things that I've heard you say I find unpleasant, you know, and I find disagreeable. And uh, the Buddha, in his genius, uh, offered a little uh, parable. Uh, and, and, and the person came and had a, had a little baby on their lap. Uh, as Tanisarabhiku, this is a little bit of an aside. Uh, the commentaries say that it's, a, it's an old debater's trick, that if you go to debate somebody uh, and you hold it, you bring a little baby with you, if you feel like you're losing the, 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 the debate, you sort of like pinch the baby and the baby starts to cry. And you go, I'm sorry, I gotta go take care of the baby. So anyway, uh, it's not, not a trick that I've tried, but I can see the utility in it. Uh, so anyway, so the guy went, had a little a baby in his lap and uh, it's a little bit unclear whether or not it was his baby or not, but in any case, it's a baby, you know? So uh, the guy had a baby on his lap and he said to the Buddha, and he went into this little discourse, you know, he wanted to debate the Buddha, and he said, you know, I find some of these things that you say disagreeable, I find them unpleasant. And the Buddha said, well, look at that little baby you have in your lap. You know, what would you do if that baby swallowed or grabbed a stick? You know how babies can do, and, and like swallowed the stick, and the stick got stuck in his throat. And the guy said, well, I put my hand down the throat and I do whatever I could do, and I pull the stick out of the baby's throat. And the Buddha said, well, you know, if you put your hand down the baby's throat, it, you know, it might scratch the throat and you might even draw blood, you know, and you know, it might be really unpleasant, you know, and the guy said, yeah, but I'm doing it because out of compassion for the baby, you know? Well, the Buddha said, that's how it is, you know? Sometimes I say things that people might find disagreeable, but I do that out of compassion. I do that out of love. Some of the things that we might do that other folks might find disagreeable, uh, you know, we do them out of love for ourselves and, and of course, for others. You know, sometimes where, uh, you know, we need to do things out of love for ourselves that others are, might find disagreeable. You know, sometimes we need to do things out of love for ourselves, or we will do things, and we will, we will in this life. We will do things in this life because we can't please everybody all the time, you know. So in order to be happy in this life, this is, this is, this is the way it's, it's going to be in this life. Uh, you know, we're going to do things if we out, out of love for ourselves. If we do things out of love for ourselves, some of these things that we do out of love for ourselves, others may find unpleasant. They will find unpleasant and disagreeable. 
because of that, sometimes we're afraid to do things that others won't like or that they'll find unpleasant. Dharma practice can, can really fall right into that category, right? Uh, you, know, you know, we may think or other, others may think that uh, Dharma practice, meditation practice, putting time into practice is selfish and that we're disregarding others Uh, by going off in solitude and practicing the Dharma or putting our effort into our Dharma practice, it might be perceived as others as being selfish or others might not like it, but our practice has a profound benefit to other beings. Our Dharma practice has a profound benefit to other beings. If we practice the Dharma, if we meditate, if we take this time to practice out of self-love, then we're in a much better position to be a benefit to others. You know, I often think of the story of the Buddha who, when he decided to, uh, to take up spiritual practice and, and uh, you know, at, at age 29, and he left behind his family, you know, and the stories in the canon of his parents in tears as the Buddha went off to become a monk. I mean, I, I think his parents kind of gave him enough, you know, enough room to go off and do that, you know. Uh, but, you know, what if his parents had said, you know, really get laid a guilt trip on him, or the Buddha didn't have enough, uh, have enough self-love and wasn't able to move past his fear and said, you know, I got to please my folks. You know, there's a chance I might become the Buddha, but you know what? I'll, I'm going to stay in the family business. Well, for one thing, I'd be out of a job. You know, we wouldn't be here today, right? Yeah. We wouldn't be here today if the Buddha didn't have, uh, you know, the courage, which is a form of self-love, to to say, you know, I know people are gonna are gonna be unhappy, and are gonna find this disagreeable, but I need to do what I need to do uh, to to you know to find my truth, to find my truth. I don't know. I was. I, I can't resist throwing this in there, but and, and I think it's. In, I put it into the notes. I, I think of that that slogan uh, from Fritz Perls. You know, Fritz Perls. He was the founder of a Gestalt therapy. Uh, and uh, if like if you were like me and you were in college in the seventies, it was like there was a poster in almost every dorm room that had the quote from Fritz Perls: "I do my thing, and you do your thing." I am not in this world to live up to your expectations, and you are not in this world to live up to mine. You are you, and I am I, and if by chance we find each other, it's beautiful. Yeah, so a classic you know, 60s sentiment. Yeah, do your own thing, man. Do your own thing. So food for thought, right? Food for thought. You know, the Dharma talk gives us an opportunity to, to reflect. In the notes, I put some reflections. You know, food for thought. Are there things, are there actions that we're not taking because we're afraid, because we're afflicted with fear? Are there actions that we're afraid to take because we're afraid that others will find them disagreeable or be displeased or even be mad at us if we take those actions? 
Are there areas where we don't act out of love for ourselves because we're afraid? And really the most important question there, question or reflection is, are we heedful? Is this something that we're paying attention to, right? Is this something that we're paying attention to? Do we pay attention? Are we heedful uh, in regard to what is driving our actions? Do we pay attention when we're taking actions or making decisions? Do we pay attention? Are we heedful in the service of seeing what we're doing or what we're thinking do about doing, whether or not that intention is informed by fear or by love? <laughs>